The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 10, verse 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her, to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another man commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, he, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you'd open up your Bibles or your apps to Mark chapter 10, we've been going verse by verse through this book of the Bible. Mark, so if you are here for the first time um, and you thought somebody tricked you into coming because we're talking about marriage and divorce and this stuff, it's not true. We're just preaching verse by verse through the books of the Bible and that's where we land today. Uh, nobody sent me an email. Nobody said my brother or sister or cousin or dad is coming and you better preach on this. Get them while you can. It didn't happen, okay? This is just where we land this morning. We've started the 1st of January and now we are 10 chapters deep into this book of Mark. So we're glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, you can see Jesus, well, it's a controversial topic, right? Now, what do you think about the Kim Davis case. Please don't tell me right here. Was... What are your thoughts on homosexual marriage and polygamy? What does a normal Christian believe about these things? What does a normal Christian believe about marriage? Do those questions already just make you squirm, right? Get sweats just thinking about it. Why is that? Well, probably... Because these are serious, hot-button issues in our culture today. And you didn't even know how hot-button they were until you shared that one article on Facebook and you felt venom coming from people you thought were your friends, right? And you're like, whoa, didn't realize it was that offensive. Didn't realize my views were that offensive or didn't realize everybody didn't think the way that I thought, right? Everyone has an opinion on these things, but expressing your opinion in our culture today, can get you in a lot of trouble on Facebook or at the office. Well, this is funny because many times people say, oh, the Bible, it's so old-fashioned. It's a worldview that's just so, you know, backwards and it's just ridiculous. And what you find in today's text is a very similar cultural situation that we find ourselves in. See, Jesus was confronted in this text today on a seriously hot-button issue for his day and age. It's still a hot-button issue for our day and age. 
But Jesus shows us here how to respond humbly, but also confidently. He's not going to deny the truth and just hide in a corner and say, oh, no, I'm not really going to answer that question because that might offend people. He's going to answer truthfully, but he's going to also going to answer in a humbly way. Now, we're going to jump right in this morning. That's all the introduction you're getting because you're already wanting, it's already controversial. You're already wanting to know what I want to talk about. So here we go, 10-1. Let's get after it. And, he le- and Jesus left there, and he went to the re- region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. Jesus was popular. The crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them, okay? So Jesus begins teaching. Now, listen, Jesus is setting out on his final journey. He's been doing ministry in Galilee and around Jerusalem, but now this is his final ministry trip. He's on his way to the cross where he will die at Jerusalem. So right now, Jesus is on his last journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's in the region, listen to this, he's in the region right now that's governed by Herod Antipas. Now, if you remember from a few chapters back, if you've been with us for a while, do you remember Herod? Do you remember the problem with Herod Antipas? Herod was the ruler who killed Jesus' cousin. He, first, he had him imprisoned, and he killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer. Why? Because John the Baptizer called him out, Herod Antipas, on his divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. So you think the culture of marriage is a hot-button topic in our culture. John the baptizer was imprisoned and beheaded for telling Herod it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife, okay? So right now, he's in the region where John the Baptist said, this guy, that's an unlawful marriage. You can't divorce your wife and marry your brother's wife. That's unlawful. What law is he talking about? He's saying it's lawful. In the Roman province, it's completely lawful. He's saying there's a higher law than Roman law. And that law is God's law that says this is unlawful for you to marry this person. And you know what Herod did? Herod threw him in jail. Sounds completely unlike what we would do today. Threw him in jail, but then has him beheaded. Why? Because he was preaching against adultery to Herod in that moment. So now Jesus is walking through the same same uh, region that got John into trouble and these Pharisees come up to Jesus and do what? Hey, what do you think about adultery? Right? You can tell they're trying to get him in trouble. Not only that, not only that whole Herod Antipas situation, but the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had their own ideas about marriage and divorce. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, he says that if a man finds indecency in his wife, he could divorce her. Okay? That's what the the Mosaic law said. Well, the question then follows, what constitutes indecency? That's the word Moses used. What constitutes indecency? Well, the Pharisees had two schools. They had a conservative school and they had a liberal school. And the conservative school said indecency meant adultery. That the only way you could divorce your wife or husband was adultery, right? And then there was 
also the liberal group who interpreted the word indecency and they just said, well, indecency means anything I don't like. So you have records of literally people on the liberal group of the Pharisees uh, divorcing their wife over a miscooked meal, right? So this is no-fault divorce. We have the conservative group that said um, only adultery, only sexual unfaithfulness constitutes divorce. And we have the liberal group that says, hey, you, you burn my biscuits, you're out, right? So we have this going on. So now think about it. When the Pharisees come to Jesus... They're not just looking for some intellectual knowledge. They don't really, what they're trying to do is it says here, they're trying to trap him. They come up to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now this is an emotionally charged question. And it's full of real life implications. Jesus' answer might get him thrown into prison and beheaded like his cousin and And it's going to frustrate at least one group of the Jews. And also, as Jesus is answering this question, and I want you to hear this morning, there's going to be all type of people that are going to hear this. The the religious leaders are asking him, but in the crowd are going to be those who've had divorces, those who are having adulterous affairs right now, those who are um, thinking about getting uh, getting a divorce, There's going to be those who have, and and you know what, the same is true in this room this morning. I recognize that, that many of us have had divorces. Many of us are going through a divorce right now. Some of us have been divorced and then got remarried to the same person that we divorced and were remarried, praise God. Some of us are thinking about getting a divorce. Some of us have uh, been divorced and then remarried, right? There's all kinds of people that are hearing that I recognize that, Jesus recognized that, and yet Jesus still responds and Jesus still answers the way He does right here, and we're going to see why. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. So the Pharisees come up, and they're trying to test him, and Jesus answers, and he says this, What did Moses command you? So Jesus answers their question with a question. Go back to the Mosaic law. Go back to your fathers of the Jewish religion, right? Go back to Moses. So when Moses leads Israel out of Egyptian slavery... Um, one, they're going crazy, they're, they're, they're going wild, they need a law from God, so God gives them the Ten Commandments, and he gives them the Mosaic Law, and that was part of Deuteronomy 24 that I already read, um, that a man should not divorce his wife, but on this one count of unfaithfulness that he can. Look, and look how they respond. They answer his question, verse 4. They said, Moses allowed, that's a big word, allowed, it wasn't a command, it was a concession, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus right here is saying this. Divorce is a concession right? Because of the sinfulness of the human heart. We are selfish people. We are broken in our nature and in our desires, and therefore we do sinful, selfish things that can damage a marriage beyond all recognition. And because of the hardness of our heart, Moses gave us a concession that says that if a woman or a man commits adultery, that they can have, they can seek out a divorce. Now, what Jesus is doing in this text 
is really brilliant. He's doing two things. First, he's telling them that divorce is an unfortunate concession because of the hardness of the human heart, okay? So it does happen, right? It does happen. Then Jesus restates for us and for his listeners God's intention of marriage, okay? Now, I want you to, I need to catch you up really quick. In Genesis 1, God makes everything and God makes everything good. Genesis 1 and 2, okay? Including man, including woman, and he starts them off in marriage. Jesus is going to quote from Genesis 1 and 2 coming up. But listen, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first of humankind, sin. And because of they, they sin and rebel from God, God curses them like he promised he would, and he curses all of creation. So the world that we live in is a Genesis 3 world. The world that Jesus has entered into right here is a Genesis 3 world. Hardness of heart happens. Divorce happens. Jesus enters into a Genesis 3 world. But what Jesus is going to do here is brilliant. What Jesus is going to do here, he's not going to start his argument on on marriage and divorce from a position of Genesis 3. He's going to start his argument from a Genesis 1 and 2 position. He's going to go back before the fall and talk about the intention and the purpose of marriage. Now, why would he do that? Well, let me just say it like this. If you want to know the purpose of something and how it's supposed to work, you need to go back kind of to the factory. You need to go back to how it was created and check it out there. You might have, like this, uh, when I was, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but 10 years ago, my, my little brother, he's two years younger than me, Jordan, he has this Volkswagen Jetta, okay? Terrible car, all right? I'm just going to throw it. It was terrible. And he, he got it. It was already in rough shape. It was probably, who knows how old it was, probably 10 years old or something or seven or eight years old. Looked cool on the outside, but it was just a hunk, all right? So one day he needs to borrow my truck. And he said, you know, he, he has to borrow my truck. Hey, I'll give you the Jetta. <laughs> all right, sure, I'll take the Jetta. I borrow, I give him my truck, I borrow the Jetta, and I don't really know, I mean, everything's fine, and then I get hungry, and I want to go through the drive-thru, right? I go through the drive-thru, I pull up to the drive-thru, you know, everything's automatic here, and I've, I've driven, I've driven a Ford F-150, my last three vehicles have been a Ford F-150, all right? So I like them, and I just do the automatic, or the manual. People get in my car, and they're like, what is that? I'm like, yeah, I just, so it's got all these buttons up, I pull up to the drive-thru window, you guys probably know where this is going, right? Nothing happens, right? So what do I have to do? Everybody knows if you've ever had a crappy car like this, you know exactly what you have to do. You have to open the door and tell them your order. And then the worst part, the little 20-foot drive of shame, you have to drive up and then look at them and then open your door and then reach out and get your bag and pull it in and then just drive off, right, completely ashamed of the hunk of junk that you're driving in, right? Now, this is what I was thinking. I was, I was thinking about marriage and where we are in Genesis 3 world. Many of us, if you've never experienced any better car than that, like if, if you grew up and you always pulled up to the drive-thru and opened up your door and reached around and grabbed it, you have no idea that those little buttons on the side were actually meant to lower that window down. That's what it was. It was created to lower down and not open the door, right? But if we start 
If you grew up and that's all you know, when you want to talk about going to the grocery or going to the drive-thru or rolling a window, you're like, what are you talking about? It, all you know is the brokenness that you've already experienced. All you know is this broke-down vehicle that you grew up in. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you want to understand what those little buttons were for, you need to go back to the either instruction manual or you need to go back to see it when it was created. Now listen, marriage is in the same state as that Volkswagen right now. You grew up in a culture with a broke-down version of marriage. Over 50% of all marriages end in divorce. The same statistic runs true for those who claim to be Christians. Now, if you throw in those who attend church consistently, those who read their Bible, that the Christian state of marriage is actually a lot higher, more like 70% stay together, right? But our culture today is in a... we're, We're broken. Why? Genesis 3... We've got thousands of years of brokenness and sinfulness. So now we have 50% of all marriages that end in divorce, right? What else? We have, th- we have millions of people in our day and age saying, divorce, or, or, or saying marriage is nothing but a piece of paper. Like, I'm just going to throw it out. We're going to live together. We're going to uh, be domestic partners, and we don't even need to get married. It's a broke-down version. You, if you're sending your kids to the public school system, they're learning right now that marriage has nothing to do with gender. That two men can be married and two women can be married, and pretty soon, possibly, it's in the Supreme Court right now that they're going to be learning it doesn't even have to be one person and one person. That it could be polygamy is fine. That Why can't one person love three people? Right? We, our culture right now, we have a broke down version of marriage. We have the Jetta with the windows that won't work, and we've grown up thinking, well, the all wouldn't, they never work. Marriages always just break up. Divorce always happens. This is just, that's a concession. Opening that door is a concession. It's not the intention of the designer. So, these are the current realities that we're living in right now. That's marriage after the fall. It's after Genesis 3. It's nothing new. We saw polygamy right away after Genesis 3. It's nothing new. That's marriage after the crash and burn and abuse and hardness of heart. But what Jesus is going to do, you see, this is brilliant. This is a hint for us at the whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth. Jesus, as the Son of God, he's going to say, yeah, yeah, Genesis 3 happened, but let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. What was my father's intention for marriage? Because that's my intention. I'm going to restore the whole universe back to Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to remove the curse of sin. That's why I have come. So that's what Jesus does. And look what Jesus says, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Jesus here affirms the binary nature of gender. He says God created from the beginning male and female. That's the purpose. Now, it doesn't mean, why? But we have all this gender confusion there. Yes, Genesis 3. Absolutely. We've got sin. We've got gender confusion. We've got all kinds of problems. Genesis 1 and 2, God made them male and female. Genesis 3, we've got gender confusion, sin, everything. It's jacked up. We get it. But Jesus is going back to Genesis 1 and 2 before sin has damaged so much of our humanity. Jesus is trying to show us 
that God's design of humanity and of marriage has not changed. It's been affected by sin. It's been influenced. It's even damaged us so badly that we're beyond recognition sometimes. But Jesus has come not to start over, not to wipe everybody off the planet and begin again. Jesus has come to restore us. Jesus is here to restore our marriages to what they intend, what God intended them to be. Verse 7. Therefore, okay, that therefore, if you're a Bible student, if you like to study your Bible, anytime you see a therefore, you should put that bad boy in brackets because it's telling us, because of what I just said, this, this is true. It's a logical connection to the argument, okay? So he said, because God made them binary, God made them male and female, and he put them in the garden. One male, one female, puts them in the garden. Therefore, this is about to be true. Look what he says here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, in old versions, it said a man should leave and cleave. A man should leave and cleave or leave and hold fast. We're going to look at both of those things because we're going to talk about marriage now. Leaving. What this shows us is, first off, we see one one thing about marriage we see here is it's meant to be complementarian. It's meant to be complementarian. It's meant to be male and female. When two males are together, it's not diverse enough for God, okay? He wants it complementarian. He wants a male and a female because he made them male and female. He wants them to complement each other. The sexes complement each other. They fit together. It's a complementary union that only happens with a male and a female. First off, complementary union. Secondly, God's, uh, Jesus is going to show us the priority of marriage. When he says, leave your father and mother, he's showing us that marriage is meant to be the most important relationship in your entire life. Jesus is saying here, there's something unique about marriage. There's something, there's a priority to it. Did you know there's never been a human civilization uncovered that didn't have heterosexual marriage between a male and a female? There's never been a, we've never uncovered a society that didn't have marriage. Why? It's not just a piece of paper. It's in our DNA. It was written into us at creation that a man and a woman should be united together in marriage. Now, let's look at the priority here. When God created us, who does he put in the garden? He puts a man and a woman. This shows us something. He did not put a mom and her babies in the garden. Right? He did not put a family with lots of children in the garden. He did not put two dudes, like buddies, in the garden and said, this is your garage, dude. Do with it whatever you want to do with it, right? And they had this man cave, and it was, right, that would have been the end of it. All right? He didn't do it. What did he do? He puts a man and a woman showing the priority of marriage. It's the foundation for society. According to God, marriage is the most foundational and primary relationship of your life. One thing people like to say when they are kind of pushing back on this or they're disagreeing with the Bible's stance on marriage is they say, oh, it's, it's outdated 
All it was doing was echoing the culture of its day. It was a conservative culture, so it was just echoing a conservative culture. But that's not true. See, people who say that, they miss the context that this text is written in. In this day, in ancient cultures, this biblical world that we have right now, the family was the primary unit, not marriage, not the husband and wife. The family was the primary unit. You found your value and your significance by being a part of a family. So when they read this passage in an ancient culture, when they read this passage, they were offended by it, just like we're offended by it for different reasons. They're like, what? Leave my father and mother? What are you talking about? See, what happened in that day and age, children didn't leave their father and mother. They just built another room, another addition onto the house. Some of these young folks here are like, hmm, I've been trying to tell my parents that for like 20 years, right? But what they would do was they would follow then in their father or mother's footsteps and they would pick up the trade. They didn't just play Minecraft all day, okay? They picked up the trade of their parents. Fishermen were fishermen, right? And they followed in the footsteps of their parents. But uh, it was a family-driven society, not individualistic like we are. So it was common to have several generations of family living under one roof. And into this ancient familial culture, right, that put family over the individual, Jesus says, leave and cleave. Leave and hold fast. Leave your father and mother and hold fast to your wife. And now what does that mean? When 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 God says to leave, it doesn't just mean move out. Now, listen, it does mean that, okay? So, we do, when you grow up and when you get, you do need to move out, right? I mean, there's other circumstances I know that for a short time that can happen, but it also means mentally and emotionally leave. See, I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling. I have had a wedding every other weekend for the past 10 weeks, okay? We have a lot of folks getting married. Thank God for it. It's an evidence of grace, but that means I do a lot of pre-marriage pre-marriage counseling. And one of the common problems that I see in our society now is people don't know how to leave and cleave. They might do it physically. They might move out and get their own place, but they don't leave emotionally and they don't leave mentally. See, what does it mean? You must decide, as a couple, you must decide for yourselves what are our roles going to be. See, you're coming in assuming she's going to act just like my mom and he's going to act just like my dad and the, vice versa. He's going to cut the grass. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's going to do that. He's going to pay the bills, and I'm going to do the, these things. You have these assumptions in your mind that it's going to be just like your parents' relationship, and if that was bad, then obviously you're praying to God it's not going to be like that. The Bible, though, does not say she must stay at home with the kids. The Bible does not say that only women do dishes and only men mow the grass. The Bible doesn't say these things. Now, it does give us big principles, like we're, we're to train our children in the way of the Lord. We're to provide for them a Christian education. It says these things, but how we go about it, that's open for discussion. Who is the primary one who shapes the children in these directions or what are our roles specifically? The Bible doesn't talk about that. There's a great amount of freedom in that for the believer. But if you don't talk about this, you're going to be in trouble. I remember my wife and I, we, we, we sat down and we went through this before we got married. We said, okay, 
what, will our fa- what do we want our family to look like? Let's look at the Bible. Let's read some good books on it. Like, you've got brokenness in your family history. I've got brokenness in my family history. We don't want to repeat that. What's it going to look like for us? And then we started asking our question, okay, what are holidays going to look like? Well, we were, you know, and we both, all, all of a sudden, all these assumptions start coming. To, well, duh, we're going to spend it with my family. Right? And she's like, well, we kind of do this thing with my family. And we're like, okay, let's talk about this before we get married. So now we have to work this out. What's, it going, what's marriage going to look like for us? What's it, this is leaving and cleaving our parents emotionally and mentally. We're not letting what they kind of dictated dictate for us what it's going to look like for a marriage. So we've got to have these conversations. Now, there's, there's a lot of emotional stuff that goes in here too. Many of us, when we get together, we just hated something about our parents. And so we say, I'm never going to do that because of that. Maybe even something like spanking your children. Like, I will, my parents, you know, they, 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 they spanked me too hard or they did something unbiblical. I'll never spank my children. Whoa. That's not leaving and cleaving. Your parents are still controlling you then. Right? We're responding out of something our parents said, we're not leaving and we're not cleaving. You haven't left yet. Your parents, even though you might have left the house, your parents are still controlling you. This is a profound text. I wish I had more time, but I gotta cruise through this. Leave your father and mother, emotionally, physically, mentally. And do what? Hold fast. What does that hold fast mean? Hold fast, that word there, means covenant. It's the term for covenant, a covenant. It's like a legal binding contract. It says, leave your father and mother and get a contract. No, not a contract. I don't like the word contract, but it's, it's better than contract because contract is you do your part or I'm out. Covenant is no matter what you do, I'm there and I'm going to do it. So it's a covenant, but it's legal. That's what the word hold fast means. Now, you might not like this. It sounds too... Legal, boring, dry, marriage is meant to be a covenant. Well, I, I honestly, I can see why you would say that. I understand it when people push back on that. I understand why you would say that. I think you might be right, but I want you to think about this. What is a covenant? Covenant, covenants, um, and there's a lot of covenants in the Bible, and really to understand the Bible, you need to understand covenants. I don't have a bunch of time to go into it, but covenants are legal, binding and I, I hate to use the word contract, but it's a, kind of like a contract. They, they take discipline. They take authority. They take commitment. Oh, do you like those terms when you think about marriage? Discipline, authority, commitment. Does that sound like love to you? Are those love words? Well, if you're like, no, those aren't love words. <laughs> I think you're showing your kind of postmodern tendencies. That the worldview that we possess has really shaped you, and your view and your idea of love has been shaped by our culture and not what God says love is. See, the pre-modern mind back here in this day and age, they loved covenants. They loved those words, commitment and honor right, and discipline. Those were love words to them. That's what they wanted to hear, right? Feelings were like, you know, changing with the wind. 
They didn't put much stock in their feelings. They put stock in commitment. But we're beyond that. We've moved past that. We're, some people say we're postmodern. We don't think that way now. So now we think the truest thing about us is our feelings. See, we don't want commitment. We don't want authority. We don't like discipline. We want the opposite of that. We want freedom, individuality. We value spontaneity over responsibility. I want to keep my options open. See, we don't want commitment in our culture today. But listen, but what we don't realize by doing that and thinking that way, what we're doing is we're valuing feelings over commitment. We are assuming a definition of love that is totally based on our feelings. And listen, can I just tell you that? If your definition of love is totally based on your feelings, marriage would be the scariest thing in the world. Because how can I guarantee what that person's going to feel a month from now? How can I guarantee what I'm going to feel two months from now, a week from now, an hour from now, okay? An hour from now, I get hit with this over, I just need a nap or I will kill someone, okay? An hour from now, that's going to happen. I'm feeling pretty good right now. But I don't know if it's the caffeine or the pressure or what it is. An hour from now, don't even look at me. Don't even look at me, right? Now, if our definition of love is based in our feelings, marriage is like an impossibility. It's too scary. I can't predict where I'm going to feel what they're going to feel in the future. It's common. I hear this all the time, actually. Well, you know what? Exactly. But I don't need a piece of paper. I don't need a... Marriage is nothing but a piece of paper, and I don't need a piece of paper to love you. Can I just respond to that really quick? Listen, what you're saying when you say that is my love isn't based on a covenant. My love is based in my feelings, and right now, I feel like I love you. And therefore, since I feel like I love you, we're good. Everything's good, right? I feel like I love you. I feel like receiving love for you. But there's no guarantee. But what the Bible does, the Bible doesn't define love by our feelings. The Bible measures love by how much one person is willing to give up love for another. How much one person is willing to sacrifice and lay down and act loving towards another person. Now, as I'm doing all this premarital counseling, and I hear all of these things that we're so shaped by this postmodern idea of love that's love's in our feelings. People often say, Justin, I want to write my own marriage vows. We want to write our own marriage vows because we Googled it and we found some great ones, right? And the, 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 the sad thing is, nearly every time a couple presents to me their wedding vows that they've written, they're all based in their feelings. You're beautiful, you mean so much to me. I love you so much. I love this about you. I love that about you. It's all based in their feelings. But if you go back 100 years, 50 years, and this is what we do. I, most of the time I go, nope, can't do that. We're doing traditional vows. Why? Because traditional vows say nothing of love, say nothing of feeling. They knew feeling it. We know you feel, you love each other or you wouldn't be here, Right? 
Feelings are assumed. What do traditional vows say? Traditional vows say this. I promise to be loving. I promise to be faithful. I promise to be tender. I promise to be kind. I promise to be cherishing. No matter how I feel, I will be there 100 years from now, 50 years from now, till death do us part. Commitment, covenantal language. Right? We knew feelings come and go. Commitment stays. A covenant stays. But in our day and age, I mean, it's just, we're just floating around by our feelings, being controlled by our feelings. Biblical love, the Bible's version of love, right? What God says love is, because God is love himself. Can you, listen to this. I want to say, uh, this is a side little note. If you think love is based in your feelings, how could you ever be convinced that God loves you? Is God looking down from heaven and just, I'm just incredibly happy. Look how they're living. Slow clap. This person is just crushing it. I'm totally into this person. She's so successful. She's so phenomenal at her job. She lays her life down and loves people so well. Oh, I just feel so loving towards this person because she's so amazing. And then you lie at work. What's God do? Love's based on feelings. What does God do with you there? See? But God's love isn't based in emotion. God's love is based in a covenant that he's made with Jesus Christ who's lived a perfect life in your place. God's completely happy and completely pleased with Jesus and therefore when you embrace Jesus by faith, he's completely happy and pleased with you. It's a covenant. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on how well you do. It's not based on God's feelings or your performance in the moment. Biblical love, see, is shown and how much I'm willing to sacrifice for another person, how much I'm willing to deny my choices. Listen, if you're, young, if you're under 30 here, I, I want to speak to you this morning. Actually, all of us probably because we watch TV and we're just in this culture now and we're just so influenced by it. I want us, this is one of the reasons you need to come to the gathering. This is another re- reason you need to read the Bible. You need to read books by good authors, biblical authors. You need to come to missional community. You need to have your worldview shaped back into a biblical worldview and not into our culture. Because having this feeling-driven love is destructive. It's destructive to friendships. Friendships can't hold up under it. It's destructive to marriages. Listen to this. If your love is based on feelings, if you're in a marriage, if you even get married, but your love's based on feelings, and someone who's more attractive than your spouse walks by. You have no reason not to level up. You have no reason. I'm emotionally drawn to this person. I'm physically attracted to this person more than my wife. She listens to me because she don't know how stupid you are. That's why she listens to you. But anyways, she ain't figured that out yet, right? You're attracted to her in this way. What what stops you? If it's emotional, if it's feelings driven, you're going to go because you think happiness is found there. Biblical love is covenantal. It's not based on your feelings. It's based on sacrifice. It's based on this is the woman I'm going to live the rest of my life with no matter who comes. 
No matter how attractive, no matter how smart, no matter how influential, no matter who comes, I'm denying every other option. That's love. That's love. Not a gooey feeling. Then, so here we go. We've got these, this is male and female. Comp- marriage is complementarian, okay? It's, the prior, it's priority. It's the priority of marriage. It's the most important relationship in your life. Third, it's a covenant, right? It's, it's based on a covenantal style of love, not emotional. And now, listen, this is what Jesus says. When you've done this, when you have a complementary union, when you put this person above every other person in your life, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and when you have a covenant, then you do with your bodies what you've already done with your lives. You have a sexual union. Jesus goes on and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is interesting. Marriage is more than just a piece of paper. Jesus says marriage, when it's done God's way, God himself is joining the two together. That it's a covenant not between two people, but between three. Husband, wife, God that God is joining these two together in the union, the covenant of marriage, and God himself is blessing it. And what God blesses, let no man curse. Let no man break apart. Let no man separate. So this is what Jesus says. Because of the way God created marriage, let no one separate them. Marriage is meant. Now, if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, they have this great sentence in it that keeps getting repeated. My kids have it memorized. As soon as I say one word, they, they like spit out the rest of it. And what it is, it's a modern-day description of covenantal love. This term, covenantal love, is called hesed in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. And so to, to, to modernize it a little bit, this is what the Jesus Storybook Bible says. It says this, it's the never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what he calls it. The never giving up, or never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's covenantal love. Jesus says, listen, marriage is meant to be covenantal. It's meant to be never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. But, back to the but, we live in a Genesis 3 world. People sin, people walk away, people get abusive. People have affairs. Because we live in a Genesis 3 world, divorce is a concession. It's a last resort. And as I was studying this week, I came across a scripture that moved me, changed my heart. Now listen, there's, there's a lot of us in here that you might be thinking, yeah, divorce, divorce, divorce. Get them, get them, get them. God hates divorce. Preach it. And if that's your mentality, I'm just going to say you, you need to check your heart because that's not the way God looks at divorce at all, actually. In Jeremiah 3, God's people, Israel, had been having affairs on him. They've been running and worshiping other gods. They continued to rebel. 
and God equates that with adultery. And you know what God says to Israel in Jeremiah 3? God divorces her. Jeremiah 3, God says, I'm divo- I am sending you away and I'm divorcing you because of your adultery. He sends her away with a decree of divorce in Jeremiah 3. Think about that. God himself knows what it feels like to have an adulterous spouse. God himself knows what it feels like to be backed into a corner and be almost forced into divorce. God so resonates with people who've had a divorce that he says, I've had a divorce myself. God's love is absolutely unstopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. But sometimes divorce is necessary. It's a justifiable concession because of the sinfulness of the human heart. Jesus goes on. For those of you, what is the justifiable concession? Jesus goes on in Matthew, two times in Matthew, and he says that, Adultery is one justifiable reason for divorce. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 7 that abandonment is a justifiable reason as well. But divorce is always a concession. It was never the intention of God. We should never break our covenant in this way unless it's the absolute last resort. What 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 do I mean the last resort? Listen, here's the steps. You're in the church. You're in the family of God. Many of us have had divorces. Many of us are in the midst of a divorce right now. Many of us are struggling with the hurt that comes after the divorce. We've got a lot of stuff going on right now. Have you brought it to your church family? Are you in a missional community where people can love you and help you walk through this? Are you doing that? Are are you in an intimate, maybe a fight club, two or three people where you can walk through this stuff together? Have you gotten counseling with one of the elders here at the church? This is first step, second step, third step. Sometimes you need a separation and you both go get counseling, right? Years of abuse or years of hurt or years of neglect damages relationships. You might need to go out and get healing, and then, but divorce is the last option. And then lastly, what does Jesus say? And this is what everybody kind of freaks out about. And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus, most theologians say, if you have, a, if you have, if you have a divorce for, not, for abandonment or abuse or, or adultery, then you should remain single. And if you get married again, then you're committing adultery. Jesus says here, if you've had a divorce and it was not because of one of these concessions, for you to get married again is adultery. Now, heavy stuff. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us here. Listen, so many people, they they get so blown away that Jesus would actually have a a standard and say, yep, this is right and this is wrong. And And we break that, we have no hope except for Jesus. None of us are good enough. We're all, everyone in this room is an, a spiritual adulterer. 
You've loved other gods. You've loved yourself more than God. You've loved people and things more than you love God. And that's spiritual adultery. We're all adulterous. So this text shouldn't shock us. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't leave us here. He doesn't say, adulterer, I'm out of here. Figure it out. Work it out. Be a better person. Be moral. Pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and be a good person. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus walks the lonely road to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies for adulterers. Jesus came to this earth not to condemn us, but to save us to save sinners and to reverse the curse of sin, to bring healing and wholeness to us like we had before the fall. Jesus is here to return us, this Genesis 3 world, to return us to Genesis 1 and 2, to remove the stain of sin. That's what it means to live in his kingdom, to be a part of his new creation. He's going to restore everything back. And he does that not by just teaching good teaching. Jesus' work of redemption takes place and is inaugurated and completed at the cross. It's on the cross where Jesus became the adulterer. It's on the cross where Jesus was divorced from God, where God turned his back on Jesus and pushed him out and sent him away. Why? Jesus was treated like an adulterer so that we could be treated like a faithful bride or a faithful husband, even though we're not. Jesus was pushed away and cursed so we could be brought in and blessed. Jesus became the adulterer. Jesus became sin so that God could pay the punishment of sin. He could pay that. He could crush that wickedness that's in all of us and he could forgive us and give us new life and a new identity as his beloved bride. And though God himself pushed away and divorced Jesus and God himself pushed away and divorced Israel, God never cheated on her. God always remained faithful to her. And God said this, even though he divorced Israel, he, the promise to Abraham was still there, through your seed I will bring a deliverer, right? I will bless all the world through your seed. The promise remained to Israel. Jesus came as a Jew to Israel. Israel was unfaithful, God divorced her, but God stayed committed to his covenant. And listen, for those of you who have been through divorce and you think, man, my life, you know, can God use me? Listen, those parts in the Bible that you skip through real fast, like the, this person, this person, this person, you know, you need to study that a little bit. Because in the line of Jesus, we have prostitutes. In the line of Jesus, we have adulterers. Can God use you? Oh, Lord, absolutely yes. Can re God redeem your broken marriage? Absolutely yes, he can. Why? Because Christ paid for the sin at the cross. You get your sins forgiven. That empowers you to live with a new power in marriage that forgives the other person, that stays committed and stays covenantal when feelings wane and feelings wax. God's love for you and forgiveness for you on the cross 
gives you a new power to live a different way in marriage. Absolutely. We have Rahab, the prostitute in the line of Jesus. We have David, murderer and adulterer. We have Solomon, Lord have mercy. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Right? God can redeem it all. But listen, I'm going to tell you, it does require response from you. Some of you, the thing that destroyed your first marriage was listening to your mom or listening to your father and not leaving and cleaving to your wife or husband. Some of you, the thing that destroyed your first, second, whatever marriage was having a feelings-driven love. What are you going to do? We have to change. We need a covenantal definition of love. Are you in community? Are you in? This is the only way your idea of love is going to change. It's through this worldview that God teaches, this Genesis 1 and 2, how the world was created with the grain, one theologian calls the grain of the universe. We go against the grain, and it's not good to go against the grain. We want to go with the grain. We need to learn what the grain is. How did God build us? How did God build the universe? What is love? The only way we're going to have our worldview, our mind, our way of thinking changed is by coming here and letting this teach us. And that doesn't just happen. It does happen alone as I'm reading, but it also happens in community. Other people can speak into our life. So if you're not a part of a missional community, I want to invite you into that. This doesn't happen overnight. It's a long process. But if you want to make a change, if you want your marriage to get different, whether it's your first or your tenth, if you want it to change, Jesus can change it. But are you going to step into that, right? Are you going to make the changes and respond to him, make it that that's necessary? Are you going to do that this morning? And I pray, I pray for us that we can receive from Jesus. We receive his forgiveness. He didn't die for clean people. He didn't die for moral people. He didn't die for almost good people. He died for sinners. He died for adulterers. And that's us. So I pray this morning that you can come to him and you can put your faith in him and you can trust him and believe him and he'll work that out and he'll change your heart. I pray that. In Jesus' name, I'm going to go ahead and pray and we're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, this, your que- this question that you were asked and your answer was no less controversial in your day than it was in ours. And uh, it's easy kind of to hear that and you really hear judgment and really feel convicted and really feel like a failure and feel like an outsider and feel worthless and useless. Um. but I pray in this moment that we would be overwhelmed, not only at our own brokenness, but we'd be overwhelmed that you, a pure and spotless God, a pure and spotless groom, would come love us with covenantal love when we're so broken and so 
unfaithful to you. I pray that we would confess our sins, that many of us in this room, all of us in this room, in one way or another, are adulterers. And you give grace when we turn from that. And I pray that you would help us turn from that. And I pray, Father, that that love, that one-way love, that you love us, but we don't love you back, that would change our hearts and enable us to return that love to you. And that we'd live like a faithful spouse. Father, I pray that just the forgiveness, just the waters of forgiveness would wash over your people. They wouldn't be ashamed of their divorce. They wouldn't be ashamed of their unfaithfulness. It would be a scar that would remind them of your grace. It would remind them of your goodness, of your love to them. That We would look at it and go, that's how bad I am. That's how broken I am. But I'm so loved that while I was in the midst of this, Christ died for me. Jesus, you came and died for sinners. And so I pray that we would receive the grace that we need, um, grace to love our spouse well, grace to resist the temptations to sin sexually, to um, operate outside of the bonds of Scripture, of what you teach us in your word. I pray that you change our mindset, help us see the goodness and the rightness and the truth to your word. I pray all these things uh, for your glorious name. Um, In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen.